All right. Welcome to the How Do I Get That Job podcast. This is Tyler Cutterback. This is episode six. I am here with Liz Sheehan. Why don't you just introduce yourself? (laughs) I'll let you do that. So, hey guys, my name is Liz. I am a genetic counselor at McGee Women's Hospital in Pittsburgh. I know Tyler and Stella, we used to be neighbors. And so that's how I kind of came to be associated with this podcast here and helping you guys out. Thank you so much for being on. So... Can you just start off by explaining what a genetic counselor is and what you do on a very broad scale? (laughs) Right. Uh, Nobody knows what it is, so that's fine. At its most basic level, say that we're the translators for what doctors say and what test reports say as to what it means for that individual and their families as far as their own health care, their risks going forward to have their own children or other members of their family. So that's basically genetic counseling as a whole, but there's lots of different facets within genetic counseling. So what do you mean by tests? So if someone gets genetic testing or even before getting to the point of doing genetic testing, if they have lab results or they've had a diagnosis of cancer or they have a finding on ultrasound, things like that, explaining to patients what it can be associated with, what it means. Most importantly, if we don't have a diagnosis at that point, that it's not a diagnosis. Okay. Um, and what other information we can find out by doing genetic testing and what the benefits, limitation, risks are in doing that. So you said that there's multiple different facets right. of this. Can you kind of explain some of the subcategories? So I'd say the big three are prenatal counseling, cancer counseling, and pediatric counseling. Now in the era of genomic medicine, subspecializations. There's lots more specialties within that. So I'm a prenatal counselor at McGee Women's Hospital, but I also focus on reproductive genetics. Um, Some of my other colleagues focus on adult genetics, focus on cardiomyopathy, Huntington's disease. It can get very disease specific. There are also laboratory genetic counselors who just focus on variant interpretation of test results for changes in our genetic information that we don't know the meaning of yet. Uh, There are research genetic counselors that talk with patients and families going through research studies as far as gene therapies, things like that go. Um, So there's lots of different areas that you can get involved with it. How did you get involved? So I was in college and I was pre-med, like any other science major, kind of going (laughs) through college. Um, But I really didn't love uh, the more I started shadowing doctors and seeing kind of what their day-to-day was. Didn't love seeing that for my own career. I wanted more one-on-one patient interaction. So I was in a genetics class for completing my biology degree at the time. And they mentioned all these other things that you can do within genetics and genetic counseling was one of them. And I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, that night, essentially just kind of delved into it and thought it was the coolest job ever that you get to do a combo of teaching without having to grade things, but also there's a psychosocial counseling component to it of sitting people and going through some of this really tough information when it has ramifications for them, their children, their family members. And so that's how I kind of came to genetic counseling with that. So where did you get your undergrad degree? So I went to Loyola University in Chicago, which is right on the north side, right on the lake there. And you're originally from Chicago? Yes. Is that why you went to Loyola? Because it was close? Yeah, it was... Ironically, my second choice at the time, I'd wanted to go to Penn um, out there in Philadelphia. And 
I had gotten rejected there because it's Penn and <laughs> uh, ended up going to Loyola because I loved the campus. It was beautiful. I love Chicago. It was a great city. And they had a combination of both doing really well in science. They also had an Italian major and I was studying Italian in high school. I would have liked to keep up with it in college so I could dual degree essentially while I was there. Did you? To be able to do both. Yes. I have two bachelors. Awesome. Yeah. So you have a BS and a BA then? Yeah. Yeah, me too. High yeah. five. <laughs> um, so can you tell me a little bit about what it's like going to an urban campus? It's very different. All my friends went to like University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and it's all very much like there's a central quad. It's very spread out, but all the buildings are mostly there. Everything's very college focused. Being at Loyola, it was very much you are integrated into a community that's already been established outside of that university. And so at Loyola, it's on, so it is on the north side of Chicago. It's in a neighborhood called Rogers Park. And there's everything within Rogers Park as far as there's a little strip of street down Devon Avenue that's Little India, Little Pakistan. There's another strip uh, down Clark Street that's like Little Mexico, Little Latin America over there. And so you get a lot of diversity within that area, but then you get closer and closer to campus. And Loyola itself is a fairly affluent, upper middle class, white campus, essentially. Yeah. Uh, right on the lake there. And so it, you get a very big mix depending on where in Rogers Park you are, but you're so close to so many different things where you can leave the college aspect of it if you wanted to. And it's very integrated into a city life. Did Maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. Did they have guaranteed housing all four years or did you have to live off campus at a certain point? No, they required you to have housing for two years to be on campus, closer to campus, and then you could have housing on campus. There wasn't housing available for everyone, and that's because most people choose to live off campus in their okay. last two years. Yeah, I mean, you see that in a lot of college campuses, but definitely just on the college side of things, that's something that parents like to know a lot yeah. about is, can they live there all four years if they want to? Yeah. Uh, so really, it's more about living off campus junior, senior year then? Yeah, I mean, you certainly can if you wanted to. There were dorms specifically for junior, senior, kind of upper level undergraduates who wanted to stay on campus, whether they had their housing covered because they were part of maybe an ROTC program or okay. they were working on campus more heavily. If they were exchange students and wanted to live on campus for that purpose, there's lots of different options there. But they also touted a lot of being involved in your community, being involved in Chicago. We are here in this amazing city. Use your resources to be able to do that. And with your tuition, you got a monthly or I guess annual pass for the CTA, which is the transit in the area. Oh, nice. So it's the bus, uh, they call it the L there. That's the subway, but it's above ground. The elevated so that, train. Right. <laughs> yep. And so you got access to all of Chicago that way. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're originally from the Chicago area. You went to a school in Chicago. You have a master's degree though, right? Right. Where'd you get that? So I went to Brandeis University just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. That's really funny. Uh, literally, the so your episode six, episode three, he got his bachelor's degree from Brandeis. Oh, cool. Yeah, yep. it's a very cool school. Yeah, it's very... I, I've never actually visited Brandeis myself. I've always seen, like, you know, Harvard and MIT mm -hmm. and, like, the big names that you go to because right. they're fun as tourist attractions, more or less. But I've heard great things. 
Yeah, it's I I didn't hear much about it until I was looking at graduate programs. And the thing about genetic counseling are there are not many graduate programs because it's such a specific field to go into. And in the grand scheme of science, genetics is fairly new. That we didn't sequence the whole genome project essentially until uh, we didn't start it until the 90s. It wasn't completed until the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so the whole concept of having professionals just to interpret genetic information is a really new concept in healthcare. Hospitals now are just being able to then now realize the value of being able to do that and then hire people as a result. Mm-hmm. And so when I applied, there were only 34 programs in North America, so the United States and Canada, that had genetic counseling specific master's programs. Wow. And so you kind of look to see, all right, where would I like to be? And uh, what those programs entailed. Overall, the curriculum is pretty similar. You'll be prepared to be a genetic counselor no matter where you go, but they have may have different focuses that some are very involved in disability awareness, like Brandeis is. Some have more of the psychosocial training, like Brandeis does. Others are more affiliated with a medical school campus, okay. so they can utilize the resources that a medical school would be able to give you. And so they're all very different in that respect. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to go into a master's program? Because, you know, I don't have my master's, but a lot of my friends do. And they always Mm -hmm. say that it's a very different experience than your undergrad experience. Can you kind of weigh those for us? It's very different. I went straight after my undergraduate degrees. And so I spent four years at Loyola. I moved halfway across the country and then I continued on with my master's degree for two years. And it was so wildly different that when you're an undergrad, you're pretty integrated into campus life. You go to the student union, you kind of have forced friendship making your freshman year in the dorms, that sort of thing. You are much more independent and much more program focused in a master's degree. Okay. And so it is quite a stark change, especially when your program like mine was only 10 students in your class. It's very oh, wow. different from uh, you know some undergraduate programs. And so you get to know the people in your class very, very well. And those are the people that you see for the next two years. You're not really a part of clubs, organizations, that sort of stuff. Some degrees are different and some will have that. You know, if you're in business, they may have you know more business school associated programs. Mm-hmm. But with such a small program like mine, there really wasn't anything besides our own activities that we facilitated together. So bachelor's degree, master's degree. Mm-hmm. What were your favorite three classes in each? Um, so bachelor's degree, uh, genetics was very cool. I really love my genetics class. I took my first Italian class at Loyola was probably overstepped what I was able to do. And it was a huge challenge, but it was a 300 level Italian class called La Divino Commedia. It was Dante's Divine Comedy in Italian. Oh, wow. (laughs) So day one, I was reading Inferno. In Italian. Um, in Italian. And it's like old English. Old Italian is very different than modern Italian. Mm. But it was so cool to be able to see that. And Dante had this really interesting philosophy of making, especially for Inferno, making the punishment fit the crime, essentially. So, you know, your punishment in hell fit the reason why you were in hell in the first place. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Um, Third one, I took a really interesting um, literature class while I was studying abroad at Loyola at the Rome campus that was all a creative writing course. And we just went to different places in Rome and sat there for two hours and just wrote about what inspired you. 
I'm not a big creative writer, but that class was really cool. I mean, if nothing else, it's a tourist right, class. Right, exactly. Really cool. It was awesome. And then in my master's degree, I really loved our psychosocial counseling classes because it pushed me in a lot of ways that I haven't had to before. I've never really had training on what do you psychosocial mean? counseling. So it's kind of just being able to sit with someone and not give them information, just be able to sit with them and what they're feeling, prompt additional feelings from them, kind of have them work through what it is that they're going through. So it's not necessarily information driven, like a lot of bioscience classes have been up until that point. It was all just sitting with someone when they're hearing news for the first time or that they're going through a really tough time and just being able to elicit more understanding of the feelings from them, being able to help them voice what they're feeling to themselves, to their partner, whomever, and also just be comfortable in letting them kind of work through it. So silence is a big thing that I had never had a training on in my entire life. <laughs> so that was really interesting class for them. That's honestly the one thing of any therapist, counselor that I've ever talked to is you have to let the silence hang because that's when people finally come out of their right. shell. They want to fill that silence. Right. If people are very uncomfortable with silence. And I was super uncomfortable with silence when we first started doing it. But now in actual practice, being a counselor and especially being a prenatal counselor, you're with people kind of when they find out for the first time that something's not quite as they would expect in that pregnancy, for example. And so just giving them the space to work through it and feel like they can have all the time in the world to just kind of sit and feel what they need to feel is so incredibly important. And trying to bulldoze over that with facts and figures mm -hmm. is detrimental to that therapeutic relationship. So prenatal genetic counseling, mm -hmm. I'm sure like the big buzzword there is like designer babies. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about like the reality of that and if that's even what is remotely close to what you do? It's not remotely close to what I do. Most of the people I see are already pregnant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so I think when people think of the concept of designer babies, it's editing the genome to make your child look a certain way, act a certain way, things like that. We are so far away because we don't even know what genes it is that specifically make one particular hair color that dictate aspects of our personality, things like that. We are so far away from that because we have bigger fish to fry. We're trying to figure out genes that cause um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. We still don't know what some of the genetic causes for that are. So then you first have to figure out what the cause is for that, what specific changes can mm -hmm. make that happen. You then have to figure out in an embryo how to make those changes happen. If they're not already there, there are... I guess studies now, and there was kind of a big article about it coming out of China a couple of weeks ago about CRISPR-Cas system and editing and essentially having been born the first genome edited baby for, um, I think it was a CCR5 variant that would make them resistant to HIV. Okay. But we also don't know what the offset effects are. So what CRISPR-Cas is, is essentially a cut and paste tool yeah. for our genome. And it we know it can be very specific to certain areas, and that's what certain bacteria use to edit within their own genomes. But it also, in humans, the studies and research just isn't there and not robust enough to know it's really specific to that one area you want to be able to do, let alone if you want to do many different areas because that would just be a mess of cutting and pasting throughout the whole genome. 
we're not even at a point in embryos to be able to take away maybe a mutation associated with cystic fibrosis, for example. So I think we are pretty far away from that. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to have these conversations and know that ethically, probably not the greatest thing to do. But as of right now, my job stems so far away from that. And just for the sake of clarification, CRISPR, it's clustered palindromic repeats. I don't know what the actual (laughs) acronym is. Uh, I used to when I was in grad school, and then I really didn't need to know that for my job. And everything that I didn't need to know kind of went out of my brain. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, just from my own memory, you're absolutely right. From what I remember, it's a cut and paste. Right function for your own genome it's an enzyme that they can put in to change around Mm -hmm. all right i was just hoping to get the actual name i'll have to throw it in there later (laughs) all right so you work a lot with families you Mm -hmm. don't make designer babies what kind of student were you in high school like were you the kind of person that really loved science were you the more like talkative person like what what kind of person makes a good genetic counselor Um, I always was more talkative, outgoing, but I certainly was not the popular person in high school. Like I was not that high on the food chain. Um, I was in the AP classes. I did enjoy science. I really did. I found certain aspects of science really challenging. I had to work really hard at science. It's not always something that came really easily to me, but I thought it was interesting enough to try to do that. But our high school was full of a bunch of nerds and (laughs) even though it was public school, but there was the cool nerds and there were uncool nerds. I wasn't really in either. I was just right in the middle <laughs> and that was perfectly fine by me. I wasn't uncool, but I also wasn't super popular, but I had my group of friends and I was fine. But I've always been kind of someone who always wanted more human interaction, social contact. I knew I was not meant to be a lab rat. I think being on the edge of cutting edge research is really incredible But if to do that, then I would just be me and my little cells and bacteria all the time. I would go crazy. I need to talk to people. So that's essentially who I was. Okay, cool. So got your master, you got your bachelor's, you got your master's. Now you live in Pittsburgh. Now I live in Pittsburgh. You're a genetic counselor. Finally, Mm -hmm. you went through boards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you explain what boards are, why they're important, and why they're also a pain in the ass to do? Yeah. So boards are a way for essentially the national entity for genetic counseling to determine if you're minimally competent to be able to be a genetic counselor. And what that board exam is, it's a couple hour exam testing you on a brevity of things associated with genetics most of which are specific to genetic conditions itself. It's not testing you necessarily on um, transcription, translation, meiosis, mitosis type stuff. They assume you know that at this point. Okay. If you don't, you might be in some trouble. But <laughs> um, it's more of patient presents with XYZ symptoms. They also have these physical characteristics. What is on your differential for that? Uh, what do you What do you expect they have? Or... If you don't have a specific condition in mind, what type of testing would you run? Would you think would be appropriate for them? Um, And so that's what a lot of the board's questions are. They focus on all three areas. So cancer genetics, people who have X amount of family history of certain kinds of cancer, what inherited cancer predisposition syndrome are you suspicious of in this family? 
or what gene mutation are you suspicious of in this family? And so it kind of stretches your knowledge on a lot of different bases. Genetics as a whole, there are thousands of genetic conditions. So you study for months for boards. Um, I moved to Pittsburgh in June and I essentially didn't have a lot of social contact until I finished my boards in August. Here and there, you know, met people in our building. But other than that, uh, it was pretty much studying when I wasn't at work. Um, and even at work, they were actually pretty good about letting me study and not filling my schedule with patients from the get-go, which was nice. nice. Um, it's a pain in the butt because there's a lot of studying that you have to do, especially if at that moment you are focused on a subspecialty. You're thinking, why do I need to know all this cancer stuff? Or why do I need to know all this pediatric stuff? Or this really specific molecular stuff? I'm not a scientist person. I'm not going in and doing all those procedures. So that's kind of the annoying part when I'm actually starting my job and being a prenatal counselor, I'm trying to focus on what I actually need to tell patients, yeah. but then also still having to keep all of that information in your head. But it is important because that's how one, again, they can determine that yes, your program prepared you well enough to be able to do this job. Your employer can actually employ you and pay you the salary that they said they were going to pay you. And three, if your state has licensure for healthcare professionals, specifically for genetic counseling, that's not in every state, Pennsylvania does have licensure, then you can charge insurance for your uh, services. And so the hospital gets reimbursed for being able to have genetic counselors on staff, which promotes more genetic counselors being available, mm -hmm. which means that we can actually serve more people across the United States. So that leads me into my next question, actually. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to work at McGee Women's Hospital? Mm -hmm. You know, Obviously, I don't want you to violate HIPAA or anything. Right. Uh, but, you know, can you talk about what it's like to work in that environment in a hospital, in a women's hospital specifically, and, um, you know, just anything else that you think is kind of poignant about that? Right. McGee is this, like, behemoth of a specialty women's hospital that always does cutting-edge procedures, everything like that. UPMC as a whole has a pretty big reputation in, uh, across the United States for being able to do things, uh, particularly from a prenatal standpoint because it is a women's hospital. So we have a lot of resources for patients who want to do diagnostic procedures during pregnancy. We have really detailed ultrasounds, which is phenomenal. We have termination services if you want to end a pregnancy before 24 weeks, which is the legal limit here in Pennsylvania. So we can build all of that in-house. We have our own genomics laboratory to be able to do some genetic testing there. So to have all of those resources there and not have to go searching and have some of those limitations and feel like, you know, I know we can do this, but I physically cannot do this for you is really great to take that barrier away from being able to help patients. They're also, because they want to keep growing and have McGee's name in places, want you to feel like you can expand your own career um, and that they'll be supportive of you in that. So I'm working on publications for a couple of different papers I've been working on. I'm working on expanding our clinic to be more inclusive um, towards patients identifying as transgender, gender nonconforming, which is what my thesis was on. I'm also working on expanding a clinic for patients going through infertility um, and in vitro fertilization, things like that. And so, and I've been there 10 months. So they're already allowing me to do this with this career, That's which awesome. is incredible. Yeah. I mean, you don't usually get that for a lot of people fresh out of school, right. having that kind of, I don't even know if it's leadership. Right. It's just the ability to do what you need to. Yeah. That's really cool. It's incredible. I think, yeah, for being someone fresh out of school who's never had a full-time job before this, it was totally wild to me 
that they're letting me do these things that I am sitting, I'm also working on another panel project within McGee to try and bring some other testing in house that would be made more available to the general public and not just ordered by genetic counselors. I'm the only non-MD sitting on that panel. No kidding. And so to be able to bring that voice to doctors who may not consider everything about informed consents, things like that, things that we usually have to do the cleanup on on the back end of it and be more proactive about it is really, I would have never imagined that I'd be able to be here seeing patients full time and then also have these side projects 10 months out of graduate school. That's awesome. So on the ride over here, you were actually talking about some presentations you're going to be doing, yes. some keynotes. Yeah. What organizations are you doing it for and what's the topic? So I am presenting on May 2nd to the International Society of Nurses and Genetics first regional meeting here in Pittsburgh. And I'll be doing their opening keynote for the day. Just They asked for a general update on genetic testing. That is a really broad topic. <laughs> um, and me as just a prenatal counselor, you know, I'm not focused on a lot of different areas within genetics. Um, a lot of areas we, where we are getting a lot of updates on genetic testing. I'm thinking of actually bringing a couple of my colleagues, both in cancer genetics, some of the uh, counselors at Children's Hospital, some of our research counselors to also give kind of their opinions and their views on. But I know even within prenatal counseling, I'm planning on giving updates as to just guidelines as to who's considered high risk during the pregnancy, what testing we can routinely offer them, and now that I'm involved with the reproductive endocrinology and infertility group at McGee, um, talking about pre-implantation genetic testing and screening and carrier screening, which is particularly important in particular populations. Carrier screening. Yes. Can you explain? So carrier screening is identifying an individual or couples at risk to have a child with a genetic condition. So essentially for almost all of our genes, we have two copies of every gene. Some, for some conditions, some people can have a copy not work. So there's a change in that gene that makes it not work the way it's supposed to. But the other copy works just fine. So they would never know that they have any features of that condition. They would never have any symptoms of that condition mm. because the other copy is doing everything that it needs to. It only matters for those conditions if two carriers go to have a child together because each has a 50-50 chance of passing on the non-working copy mm -hmm. and therefore having a 25% chance of having a child affected with that condition. Conditions like cystic fibrosis, for example, are inherited that way, where you may not see a family history of them because two carriers have to come together in order to just have a chance to have an affected child. But that's why that carrier screening is important, because there may not be family histories that would dictate us to look for one specific thing. I now have high school biology punnett squares going <laughs> yeah, through my head. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. That... It's the big A, little A <laughs> cross. Yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. So is there anything that you want to talk about yourself? You know, any plugging that you want to do for upcoming events or anything like that? I don't really have plugs for upcoming events because I don't know how many college and high schoolers would really go to an International Society of Nurses and Genetics meeting in Pittsburgh. If they like, <laughs> so first of all, are they like selling tickets or can no, you just show up? No, I don't up? think so. I think it'd be a member of that uh, society to begin with. Okay. Um, I think the only plug I would have is just in general, like it's okay to not know what you want to do because I didn't figure out what I wanted to do until later in college. And I thought I had it down pat. I had said that from five years old onward, I was going to be a doctor. And it was really hard to let that go when I decided not to be a doctor. 
And it was really hard for my family to let that go. <laughs> and my friends, like, are you sure you have been talking about this for a long time? Um, but there's so much out there as far there's a job for everyone, every little niche. Um, mm -hmm. and so you just gotta look and you know, with the internet nowadays, you can pretty much find any piece of information and have resources available to you for that. Um, for some careers such as genetic counseling, our career, um, I guess office at Loyola wasn't so much all that helpful because they were really good at getting people into medical school, getting people into nursing school, PA school, things like that. They hadn't heard of genetic counseling, even though the National Society of Genetic Counselors is held in Chicago. And so, wow. yeah, but it's just such a new field that it's not on everyone's radar. I mean, if a career program had to keep on tabs of every new job that ever came up, yeah. there would be no way, right? And so it's just a matter of not being afraid to reach out to some of those things online and Genetic counselors as a whole are pretty cool, not to toot my own horn, but uh, they do, they really want to help. They want to advance the field, which means bringing new people onto it. They want to try and get people to find out about it when they're in middle school, high school, so they can start preparing throughout college, getting their prerequisites done and, you know, getting some more of that shadowing experience done while they're in college, or if they're not in college, when they're planning on getting ready to prepare to apply to graduate programs, because that just means we can fill the gap. There's a two to one ratio of jobs available for genetic counselors to applicants right now. Wow. And it's a huge field. There are so many jobs available. And so we just don't have enough people to fill them. That's crazy. So it, say you're a high school student, mm -hmm. right? What bachelor's degrees should you be looking at? You know, obviously bio, biology, right. biochem come to mind, mm -hmm. but is there, you know, because you're saying that there's this psychological component to it of counseling, right. would a psych degree work? Could that get you the prerequisites that you need to go to a master's degree? I don't know that a psych degree would give you all of the prerequisites. Like you do need prerequisites in biology. Uh, you need to do chemistry, some of them organic chemistry, so orgo. you may need to do, yeah, it was the worst. <laughs> Nobody likes orgo except the orgo majors. That, that's <laughs> fine. They're just weird. Um, but for, I actually really enjoyed biochemistry because it was like orgo, but actually more focused to actual life as opposed to how do you make this one specific kind of alcohol? I don't know. I won't ever need to make that in my life, hopefully. Um, and so it's just a matter of you can, for some institutions, you may be able to do those prerequisites without actually having the degree component to it. You okay. can, or you can dual degree too. You can have two bachelors, one in psychology, one in biology, if that's what you need to do. Yeah. Students in my graduating year across many different universities, not everyone had a bio degree. Some came from music and they just had to go back to get their prerequisites done kind of post back. And so there's not one linear way to get there. I think a lot of programs actually value people who have different experience than a cookie cutter, someone who essentially could be applying to medical school or genetic counseling program, because yeah. there are so few and far between genetic counseling programs, and they take so few students on average that they really want to make sure the people who are applying at that time are going to be able to get the most out of that program within that class year, but then also can contribute something to the class and to the program. So they want people from different experiences to come through. And so having those additional 
experiences like being bilingual or doing those volunteer or work experiences that you actually care about, not just for your resume, uh, is really, really important. That's awesome. That yeah, That's the kind of stuff that everybody needs to know about before they yeah. get into any job. It's just right. like, there's always, again, going back to another person from Brandeis, <laughs> uh, during our third podcast, we were talking about how he's a librarian mm -hmm. he's a genealogy and reference librarian for the center for jewish history but he got the job because he had customer service experience because mm -hmm. he was going to be handling the front desk and right. working with people you know having multiple different backgrounds can really add something to any degree right no it's so important and to be able to pick out how your past jobs, past experiences may be relevant to a field that's not directly associated can be really hard to figure that out. But so I was a manager at Loyalist Phonathon. So we were the annoying people that called alumni asking <laughs> for money. Um, and I had started there my freshman year and worked my way up from a caller to a manager. And I was making good money. I had to work during college. So I couldn't give that up to do some of the crisis counseling experiences that our graduate programs had wanted you to have or were preferred that you have. But I also talked to strangers every night for three years. Yeah. That's, and until someone pointed that out to me, I didn't really realize like, yeah, it's not in science. It's a customer service type position. It's a sales position yeah. actually, except you're not giving them anything. They're just giving you money. <laughs> um, but it's you're talking to strangers and trying to find a way to have rapport and make them comfortable enough with you to then give money within an eight to 10 minute time period, which is a huge skill to be yeah. able to have, particularly in genetic counseling. When you have 45 minutes to an hour to sit with patients, sometimes less, and you have to be able to build that rapport with them in maybe unusual or unexpected ways to then make them at least more comfortable in telling you their family history, telling you what their fears are with what the doctors had said, explaining to you what they don't understand and what information they need from you and being able to sit with them in that. And so it's very much you need some of those skills and those skills can be gotten from, you know, doing crisis counseling at a suicide hotline or doing counseling with Planned Parenthood, but they can also be gained from a lot of other experiences, things that are paid, which is a huge barrier to getting advanced degrees in the first place yeah especially in science that's amazing so let me just check the time here we are getting towards the end of our time and i always like to wrap up with last minute wisdom mm -hmm. so what is the one thing that you want to pass on to somebody else the next generation of genetic counselors the thing that you wish somebody had told you when you were trying this out yeah um that you grades really don't matter in genetic counseling like yes you have to get into a graduate program but once you're there you're fine like you're qualified to be there if you pass the class you pass the class no one asked me for what my G graduate gpa was when i was applying to jobs and mm -hmm. i applied i applied and got interviews at like five different places and so that really didn't matter so much i think you people in science as a whole it's not everyone it's a generalization tend to be fairly hard on ourselves and tend to be perfectionists. And it's a really hard thing to let go of. Mm -hmm. But when you are dealing with people's emotions on a daily basis and trying to take that in, you're also taking in some of their emotions and feeling that yourself. 
particularly if you do strive to be more of a psychosocial counselor like I do. And, you know, essentially on the front lines of telling someone there's something seriously different on ultrasound that may or may not be compatible with life and sitting with patients through that. And it can be really hard on yourself to then take all of that in and say, wow, you know, I didn't do that as I would have liked, or I didn't give them this one particular piece of information, but it's important to know you did the best you could and you still ultimately help them in that moment. And you need to find ways to take care of yourself in this field because it is a really hard and emotionally demanding field. And so just being aware of what your self-care is, and I know a lot of people poke fun at that of like, oh, self-care, take a bubble bath. But if that's what helps you release from the day, then it's important to know that. And you know, if it's speaking with other people or if you're someone who needs some more of their alone time when they come home from work, it's important to keep track of that going through this field, but also going through high school, going through college, particularly going through a graduate degree because that's intensive 24 seven work. It's important to keep all of that in mind. That's awesome. And the camera just shut <laughs> off. So that's actually a perfect way perfect. to end. Done. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you so much. Yeah, thanks it's... for this. Spreading the word about genetic counseling. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Again, just if you're interested in genetic counseling, you can go to the NSGC website, which I think is just nsgc.com.org. You Google NSGC, it'll come up. I'll also um, put it in the description of the perfect. podcast in the video. Yeah, and there's uh, all these resources there. You can find a genetic counselor. And it literally has everyone registered through NSGC um, that and anyone who's willing uh, to work with students or be open to contact. It has our emails, work numbers on there, everything like that. That's awesome. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for being on here, Liz. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, Tyler. All right. Have a good day.